Dawson and welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the best soul and R&B music throughout the decades. In our latest episode, soulmusic.com founder David Nathan and friend of the podcast A&R specialist Jerome Bowers, who has worked with a number of major record labels, discussed the rise of the retro and neo-soul music movements in the late 80s through the mid-90s. Their lively conversation centres around the emergence of such key artists as D'Angelo, Brian McKnight, Angie Stone and Layla Hathaway, as well as the influence of Layla's father, the legendary Donny Hathaway and the late Betty Wright, among others. Without further ado, let's join David and Durant to talk retro and neo-soul. The subject that I've wanted to talk to you about for, for a while um, is neo-soul. And uh, I'd like to you know, find out from you, uh, how, what, is, what is your definition of, of neo-soul? How do you distinguish neo-soul from, um, you know, traditional R&B or, uh, you know, whatever we would say R&B urban music is now? So what, how do you define neo-soul, um, when Neo Soul came about, I want to say it was around 95, 96, and it was it, it was it was a different sound when it came. Um, the album that stuck out to me the most that changed it was the Brown Sugar album from D'Angelo. And with that, it was reminiscent of New Jack Swing, because when New Jack Swing was a combination of R&B and hip hop at that time, um, kind of dance music, even in the ballads. Yeah. Neo Soul was kind of the same thing. It was a very dusty, sample-sounding R&B with um, the real talented soul voices. And D'Angelo um, was really the, I can't say the, the birth of it or the king of it, but that was the first time that I really noticed it. And then that following year, we got Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite, which was a real big record. And that following year, uh, we got Eric Badu Baduism. And with those three records, everything that followed it, it, it kind of set a bar. And everything we got after that and that strain was really Neo Soul. Then I remember the the term was coined from Kedar Massenberg, who was the manager of Eric Badu in the end. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, it was one of those things where the, the term was coined that in the late 90s. But by that time, you had those epic albums out by that time. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember when I, uh, well, a couple of things. Firstly, I, I recall vividly seeing uh, D'Angelo at a showcase, uh, and it was in Philadelphia. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was in Philadelphia, at the um, at an annual event, which was the International Association of African American Music, would have a sh- an award show every year. And uh, D'Angelo was uh, showcased at that. I'd have to look at the date. Do you know what, what year did uh, did Brown Sugar come out? Brown Sugar came out in the spring of '95. So this would have been in the. This would have been probably in 1994. I think I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the dates. But the point being, it was a showcase. It, w- it was giving people a preview of what to expect from him, and mm-hmm. what most vividly stays in my mind is he sat at the piano. He sat at the piano and played. There was no other, I don't recall that there were any other musicians. And uh, he literally had the whole audience. These were industry people, people from record companies, 
Um, these were um, some journalists, obviously, and it, it wasn't open to the public, so to speak. So it was an industry event. And uh, I remember uh, how everyone afterwards, and we were chatting after, it's like, oh, wow, what, that's amazing. And the first reference that people made after watching D'Angelo wasn't that he sounded like this artist, but it was kind of like a kind of throwback to Donny Hathaway mm. because Donny Hathaway sat at the piano. It was kind of the whole, right. it was the whole, it, he was, I, I, I recall thinking D'Angelo you know, is like the first of his generation that I'm seeing sitting at the piano accompanying himself. Uh, there were a couple of other people before, and I, I, I want to ask you one, one question related to that. Mm-hmm. So, is Brian McKnight before D'Angelo or after? I could look it up, actually. Actually, Brian was before. Um, Brian came out, yeah. and his, his debut album came out in 92, when he had like six thought. singles off that album that lasted yeah. for two years. Yeah. yeah. So what I was going to say is actually, from my from my perspective, uh, Neo, I, we, I didn't call it Neo. I think you're right. And Kedal Massenburg, you're right to term it uh, Neo. So I referred to Brian McKnight, uh, who I had the opportunity to work with as a media coach and also um, do his first bio um, as Retro Soul, which was diff- which mm. from Neo Soul because retro meaning it kind of took us back in the tradition of um, right. other artists. And, and, and with, in the case of Brian McKnight, um, that there wasn't a parallel so much with Donny Hathaway, but it was more Stevie Wonder because there was something right. in Brian's voice that that kind of uh, elicited that kind of sound. And 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 just as a, a point of reference, what his record company did, uh, he he was signed to um, Mercury. Mercury, well, actually, it was Ed Eckstein's label, which was also right. Williams, which Wing, I think Wing, Wing, Wing. There you go, yeah. In fact, Wing had Brian McKnight, Tony, 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 and Vanessa Williams. Yes. And and so I think uh, what, what they did was very smart. They sent Brian on a promotional tour, and all it was was Brian McKnight and a piano. And literally in ballrooms or wherever they did it for the press and media and radio, and people were mesmerized just mesmerized because there was a purity in his voice and, you know, and Brian would also probably fess up to that. He, he did a, a quite a few Stevie, Stevie runs, vocal runs at that time. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he, and of course he came from the tradition of, of gospel because, you know, being right. the brother called Mac Knight from take six, but it, it was a very, so I, I think of retro soul coming, I mean, these are just labels, but it kind of retro soul came before, quote, neo soul. And, right. and, and also, I, think Brian, I don't remember, but I think Brian was a little, is a, was a little older than um, D'Angelo and the people that followed. Uh, but it is an interesting progression. So uh, did, did you hear Brian McKnight or, or Vanessa or not so much Vanessa, but, but, but I'm thinking like, uh, you know, Brian McKnight and Tony, Tony, Tony. Did you hear them before? You heard D'Angelo? Yeah. Um, the, it's, it's interesting. All, Vanessa and Tony, 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 um, Tony. Vanessa worked on a Tony's album, on their revival album in 1990. And uh, she 
did background vocals for the Oakland Stroke, and I think they all kind of hung together. Mm-hmm. And when Brian came in 92, um, like you said, he was kind of from the lineage of Take Six. So yeah. he had kind of like that, that he was a real big doo-wop guy. It was like taking mm-hmm. doo-wop, bringing it into now. And I remember every, it was all ballads. Other, his very first single was The Way Love Goes. Other yeah, than that, everything was was ballads. And yeah. everybody was, oh, he's this ballad guy. And then you listen to the album, and he did I Don't Go For That from um, Hall & Oates. So it was it was very adult. But I was a teenager. I loved that album. I loved um, that first Tony album that Foster McElroy did, the Who album. That was yeah. very, like you said, it was retro. Born Not to Know and Lil Walter, it was very retro. When yeah. Vanessa came, she gave you that Diana Ross kind of vibe with the right stuff and the Correct. dreaming record. And, and I think Brian worked on that album, too. Yeah. And then all three of them, I, her and, him and Vanessa had a real big record with Love Is, and mm-hmm. they just kept going. And before Brian can come, matter of fact, the same year that Brown Sugar came out is when Brian came out with his second album. Right. So yeah, you're yeah, I can see hundred percent where you're coming from. We mm-hmm. came from electric eighties to New Jack Swing to retro and it all fed into that neo soul kind of sound. Yeah. But let me ask you this. Yes. Remember in ninety-four of the Jason Lyric soundtrack, the very first single, um, you um you should know, and it was the Black Men United and it was Jill Laverne yeah. in condition. You know who wrote that song and produced that song? No. D'Angelo and Brian McKnight. Really? <laughs> yeah. Now, I didn't um, know that. D'Angelo so I just, and his brother I wrote, the wrote about that. Song. I do know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's so interesting because as, as we're talking about this, you know, my, my, my memory is going back to this whole, there was this this kind of resurgence of, of what people like myself and my colleagues who really came up through, you know, the 60s, 70s, you know, it was like final and, and to come to the 80s kind of went to the side a little bit because of New Jack Swing and right. the rise of rap and hip hop. And, and I remember one of the constant conversations was, when are we going to get back to real music? I mean, there was so many people saying that. And then here came this group of artists that really embodied a lot of the traditions of um, of the of what we would call classic soul, classic soul right. music. Um, Very true. And I'm thinking that, you know, so, so while we were, you know, we, we began the conversation about neo-soul, we want to also include in it the retro-soul group. And I know those artists a lot of times would, would not like those definitions right. because it, it felt like there was pigeon. pigeon they were grouped. Yeah. But that's right. There's a whole group of people. I'm, I'm gonna, I'd like to ask you about a couple of those people and where you think those particular artists Fit are they retro? I'm getting a little minutia here, but minutia like. But do you consider them retro or neo? So, so I'm gonna throw some names out at you. I'm just kind of curious to your reaction. Okay. So, um, is Layla Hathaway in your estimation retro or neo or both? <laughs> I would say both, and it's so interesting you said that name. I would say both because her father, if I was to really coin something is the grandfather of Neo Soul because it, it was mm. so I'm grandfather father um was the grandfather and it was so crazy that you said when you saw D'Angelo he reminded you of Donnie Hathaway. I think Donnie and Roberta were real big influences on the biggest artists in Neo Soul. I think um 
Layla took some of her um, her father's style and put into mm-hmm. her first album, but you can hear it more in the second and third album. And those yeah. albums came in that neo soul period. So I think she yeah. started in retro, but because okay. neo soul was picking up and being what it was, she went right in with that. Yeah, and um, even if yeah. you listen to Lauren Hill, the Nothing Even Matters record, that was purposely a Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway filling type record. So yeah. I think Layla's more both. I would say both. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I'm just remembering chronolog- chronologically. You know, I think uh, if I'm correct, the Layla Hathaway's album came out in either 1990 or 1991. Yeah, it did. And um, you know, so just as an aside, and I think this is kind of useful because it helps to inform, you know, what was the thinking uh, of the the executives who worked uh, with those artists at the time. Um, you may not know this, so this might be a point of information for you of, of, of great interest, hopefully. Um, the person who signed Layla Hathaway to Virgin Records uh, was a gentleman who's actually a really good friend of mine, Jeff Foreman. And okay. Jeff Foreman is the brother of James M. Toomey. What? <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Jeff was, would be in the studio... Uh, he he says, although I don't remember, he would have been very young because he's you know we, there's an age difference between he and I, but he he would have been in the studio when I was around and Pume and Reggie Lucas when they were when they were working with Stephanie Mills and Phyllis Hyman, mm-hmm. Stephanie right. Mills, and he says of course he was always hanging out with his older brother, and he was there somewhere but I don't remember him but but of course M. Tume, James M. Tume really you know taught Jeff kind of the rudiments of the business and the, the kind of, the, the kind of, you could say the, 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 the cosmic nature of this is that of course, James M. Toomey and Reggie Lucas were in Roberta Flack's band. Right. Before they, just before they started working with Stephanie Mills and then later Phyllis Hyman and so on. Uh, and of course they wrote the closer I get to you, uh, you know, closer I get to you is, is, is James M. Toomey, Reggie Lucas song. So right. the parallels are kind of really amazing. So when Jeff first got to Virgin Records, the, his first signing was Layla Hathaway. And, um, you know, he masterminded the record. And I remember we had conversations about some of the people he was thinking of having work with her, which included um, Brenda Russell and um, Angela Winbush. And, you know, making sure that the songs represented her as kind of being the in the vanguard of a new movement, so to speak. We didn't have a name for it at that point. So it's interesting, the chronology of it, yeah. And, of course, um, you know, Jeff went on to work with uh, Gary Taylor, and he's worked with other people subsequently. Um, but the point being that that, that he, was, he really made a contribution to that whole movement, and his own, his own family lineage is informed by all that, too. So it's okay. kind of... In connections, I, I thought I wasn't sure if you knew that. If you, no, knew that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't yes. know that at all. But it's crazy. It's almost like a three hundred and sixty effect. It's uh, um, <laughs> six degrees. Everything yes. is. Um, everything goes back to Daniel. <laughs> well, in, in some senses, yeah. well, in, in in regard to this movement that we we're talking about, I know we've kind of deviated a little bit. We've gone into retro soul, but I think again, retro soul precedes neo soul for once. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's a couple of questions that come out of that. I mean, Donny Hathaway, um, yeah, for sure, was one of the 
you, you could say was the 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 I would say mastermind, but certainly the the bit of major influence, and of course with Layla, absolutely. So I'm I'm curious about then then if we look at that period of time, uh, I'm going to ask you about a couple of other names and and, and ask you if you see if they for you, from your perspective fit in this conversation in terms of retro or or neo. Let's pause for a quick break. Then we'll return to David Nathan and Deron Bowers as they continue to explore the world of retro and neo-soul. Out now, saxophonist Jermaine Lockhart's new single, Perfect Timing. Executive produced by George Benson and produced by Preston Glass, Perfect Timing is a current UK soul music radio chart hit, the follow-up to Back to the Sunshine, Jermaine's first UK soul music top 20 single. Check out Jermaine Lockhart's new single, Perfect Timing, out now on Soul Music Records, available on all digital platforms. For you, um, would Jill Scott be in the retro or the neo? <laughs> neo all the way. Um, all right. she's, she's one of the queens. Like, she's a co-queen with Erica Badu of that whole movement. So, yeah, she's definitely neo. And, and as, a, as a person, as, as a young man growing up in, in that era, mm-hmm. there aren't, how, how did their sound, I mean, how did it impact you? Well, before, before we get to that, who had you been listening to prior to listening to, to the birth of retro or neo soul? What was the music you were listening to before that? In the retro sense, it was Levert, Anita Baker, Luther Vandross, Freddie Jackson. Um, it was those type of artists. And then New Jack came. So then it was I'll Be Sure, Key Sweat, Guy. It was them. Mm-hmm. And then retro soul, I mean, um, retro came with the Brian McKnight's. The boys to men um, yeah. was in there. Did they bounce back and forth? It was that. So that's yeah. what I was listening to in retro. When it came to Neo Soul, that mid-90s, that was when Bad Boy, Death Row, Hip Hop took over everything. But within those, you had Faith Evans. Oh, yeah. 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 12. You had, um, again, Jodeci still able to last throughout that period, Boys to Men. And that was really R&B and hip hop. R&B almost destroyed hip. Um, hip hop almost destroyed R&B in that sense. That you had to have some type of either gangster beat or some type of sample to really survive. And I think 112, Puffy took 112, Total, Faith, all those type of artists. It was a lot of sampling, and their voices didn't matter as much as the music. So then when D'Angelo came, he brought that that he took those same hip hop vibes, like the DJ Premier type of things, and put real classic soul on top of it and then combined, like made a sandwich to McNeil soul. When Maxwell came, he came and took that real high falsetto and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he had the look in the Afro and things like that. And he made this yeah. thing. And then when Erica came, 
she took what the roots were doing at that time with that live hip hop. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. We got love. Um, she that. took the Roberta Flack and yeah. the Ripperton thing and yeah. and made her thing. So the Neil soul really took a lot of elements from that 70s soul music, yeah. took the hip hop together and put all that in a bowl. And that's when the Neil soul came. Like it almost hopped from what was going on with retro straight into what they were doing in the late 90s. Yeah. And you know what I can tell you from my perspective, um, mm-hmm. it was so refreshing. It was so refreshing to hear this crop of new artists who were emulating and, and, and continuing these traditions. Because I think yeah. the feedback that a lot of us had um, was that with the emergence of rap and hip hop, you know, basically um, R and B was dead. In fact, if you may recall, there was a book that Nelson George, my uh, longtime colleague wrote called The Death of Rhythm and Blues. And mm-hmm. it sensed a lot of people. I mean, I remember Anita Baker in particular. We, she comes up uh, seemingly a lot in our conversations. But I remember she was furious about the a suggestion that rhythm and blues was, quote, dead. And, uh, and, and it was a very controversial book in that respect. Um, and, and it, but it also, he, I think he was, where he was coming from was a, a fear, a concern that there was nothing that was going to keep those traditions alive or no artists were going to do it because the record companies of that time period, particularly in the 80s, you know, were very focused. And, and, and as the 90s began, you know, where the money was, so to speak, was in rap and hip hop. Right. And, and, it, and it was like this other audience was just being like, well, you know, but they, then, they, then they began to be nurtured, which was a great, as a relief for people like me. And I, I can remember, you know, as I mentioned D'Angelo, I mentioned Brian McKnight, um, you know, seeing some of these artists that you're referring to uh, live and being so happy to see, um, you know, that they were, they were had their own style, but they also were drawing on, um, you know, the, the music of, of so many of the greats. I mean, I think, I think, but sadly, at the time we're doing this podcast, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of Betty Wright, um, you know, who mm. passed away just you know, recently, and um, and her influence on Angie Stone. Yes. And, and, and on Just Stone in England, you know. Yes. And, you know, and, and she nurtured them, and she really was continued, she, she mentored them. And that, you know, meant a lot to us. And I remember seeing Angie Stone, you know, at the different showcases. Did you ever, did you ever see Angie? Well, first at showcases, then at, at, at proper shows. But did you ever see Angie Stone in that time period? Yes, I did. I saw Angie Stone. Um, I used to work at Arista. That was my first job. And, okay. Um, I'm sorry, I was at BMG as a um, intern. intern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when Jay Records was born. And that's when her Mahogany Soul album came out. And yeah. she did a showcase at the, I want to say it was called the Cabana Room or the, the Coco Cabana. It was something like that. It was a, on Wilshire. And I went and she did songs from the previous album. And she did songs from Mahogany Soul. And it uh-huh. was so, it was refreshing. It was it was very reminiscent of watching videos from that Betty Wright live session. It was very reminiscent of it. And Do you have any I idea why? Kenny Records on there. Go ahead. Do you know why I did that? Why? Because I was there. Oh, really? So you know exactly I, what show I'm talking about. Not only that, I lived 
uh, on Wilshire Boulevard. It was wow. right there. It was right near La Brea. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I lived literally five minute walks from there. Yes. And I remember going to it. It was upstairs. Yes. I remember going to it. And I, uh, the only comment I had of, at that time about, about, um, about Angie Stone is I felt she was a little too anti anti she was really she was really like bashing guys in, in, in her in between uh, even in the songs but also kind of in between songs and you know we even got stick up for whatever she was saying and it, it kind of it turned me off a little bit I'm like well okay I, I, that was what stays in my mind but I do remember the place so the moment you said that I was like wow so we were both there because yeah. we never have known that all these years later we'd be here talking about uh, what was, I guess, history at the time, what history that now, has now occurred as history. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. and Angie's another one of those names that yeah. um, is a staple when she dropped that um, Black Diamond album. Absolutely. And that was in 99, the end of 99, early 2000s when it really cracked, and she had that... Um, no more, uh, no, no more, more, no more rain. rain. No more yeah. rain. No more rain. I was gonna say pain. No more no rain. rain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, and but you know what? Let's connect back. At the time, she was in a relationship, in a co-writing relationship with D'Angelo. Well, obviously, this is just a really rich topic, Ron, and I can see that uh, you know there's just so much more to talk about uh, in regard to retro soul artists, neo soul artists, and this whole movement. So I think we're gonna have to do a part two. I I agree. Let's um pick this up on part two because there's a lot more to go into. Great. All right. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Same here, sir. You take care. You too. Thanks, David and Duran. Look out for a part two of this podcast on retro and neo soul coming soon. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for breaking news and daily updates about your favourite soul and R&D artists at songmusic.com. I'm Bethany Dawson. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on My Classic Soul. Bye.